Lyndon, thanks for joining me here today. Um, it's great to have you. You've had a phenomenally successful career as a political campaign strategist, uh, including, I think, for Prime Minister John Howard in winning the Australian national election, I think, four times in a row in Britain for Boris, Boris Johnson, helping him win two consecutive terms as Mayor of London. And, of course, for David Cameron securing a majority Conservative government in 2015, and I think you were called by him and others as the Wizard of Oz. I know you're still heavily involved in advising different parties and politicians around the world, uh, and also uh, through your advisory firm, being a professional advisor, a bit like the rest of us, I suppose, or some of us, uh, with CT Group. Things you could never be a lawyer. <laughs> I, I don't know you'd want to be. But um, so, so, so that, I think, gives you great insight, and so we're delighted you're, you're joining today. Um, the US election obviously colours a lot of things. So if we look at what's come out of the US election and we look at what voters have been doing there and we reflect on that and we also look at voter behaviour more generally, what do you think is driving things and what can we learn from what's happened in the US more globally? I think in terms of the US election, uh, obviously the first thing to observe is that it was very, very close, much closer than many predicted. And, and that shows, and you had very high turnout, which shows people were motivated. They were motivated by what a vote for each of the candidates suggested. And many of the voters were driven by values. A lot of the old considerations about um, education and wealth or income or even um, what people might call class have completely changed today. So that um, the vote for Donald Trump came largely from people of uh, non-university education, lower income. Many would be self-described as working class or in the American context, middle class voters, um, whereas once many of those people would have been considered to be voters um, who were rusted on Democrats. Um, and you saw voters who wouldn't instinctively, you'd think, necessarily support somebody like Donald Trump. So you saw evangelical Christians who numbers approached something like 65 million in the US who were supporting Donald Trump as a device to achieve certain things. And in their case, you know, more conservatives on the Supreme Court was a very significant consideration. And whilst they may not personally endorse uh, former or current President Trump and his style uh, and his own personal behaviour, they were using their vote for him to achieve what you might say is a values-driven um, consideration or outcome. So I think we saw values play a very important role. We saw, um, uh, obviously, the coronavirus play a big, have a big factor. A big influence, and if if they hadn't had COVID, I'm sure uh, the economy would have been front and centre. Hadn't had hadn't have had uh, the coronavirus, and probably it, that would have led to a Trump victory. Because one of the problems for President Trump was um, he, his his um, reputation for competence was undermined. But you're seeing a situation where um, values are very important determinants in U.S. elections, partly because you have voluntary voting, and so. Um, groups of people who hold particular values, pro-choice, anti-immigration, whatever it may be, 
line up behind candidates whom uh, they can persuade to reflect their views and then have the support of hundreds of thousands, if not millions of members or supporters who they can uh, turn out in support of that particular candidate uh, or against another candidate. So you get this division on on values lines quite significantly. What does it mean for the rest of the world? Well, you saw it with Brexit in the UK many years ago. There's a body of voters who say, we don't like what's been happening in our country and we want some. We feel we're being ignored. We want somebody to listen to our concerns. And so they're voting um, tactically to disrupt the system. President Trump was a disruptor. Um, they're, they're voting tactically to disrupt or they're voting tactically to endorse their values. So and those who have a strong view about climate change strongly endorse Joe Biden. Those who have a strong view about choice um, in relation to abortion strongly uh, supported Joe Biden. But I think the same, not necessarily on the same sorts of issues, but the same values component is driving elections around the world now. Thanks, Linton. Um, just just looking at how things might play out for Joe Biden, he had his $3 trillion Build Back Better spending plans with a heavy emphasis on green energy and infrastructure and looking to take uh, for the US more of a, a leadership role. And I think that's been further underlined by uh, John Kerry being appointed as the first ever US, I think, titled Presidential Climate Envoy. But the Senate situation could be tricky uh, and it'll have an impact on what Biden wants to do fiscally. So, so what do you think he will achieve and what do you think the impact of that agenda is going to be on the rest of the world? The first thing is, you, it's a very important point you and he needed and he needs to be seen to be pursuing that agenda, hence putting somebody as symbolically important as John Kerry, given his past and his profile, because it's not all smooth sailing for Joe Biden, um, simply because there's the risk of um, from the Senate from not controlling the Senate. There's also a risk for him uh, from uh, his own party, that is, the Bernie Sanders um, uh, grouping within the party, the left within the party will demand that that green um, green uh, spending, those green spending plans uh, be pushed forward. Symbolically, they will want to see him pursuing that. So even though uh, it's going to be hard for him to to achieve all he set in his plan, because it's likely that the Republicans will control the Senate, he, he will need to be seen for purpose, for for reasons beyond believing in it, which I'm sure he does, but but also for reasons of party management as well. I think what you will see, and and people have alluded to this, um, the potential for him to build relationships with uh, with people he's previously had a relationship. So Mitch McConnell, for example, um, and he have worked together constructively before. Will he be able to use his powers of persuasion to get some consideration for some of the issues, some of the priorities that, he, that are in that agenda. Uh, it will be harder for McConnell on this occasion because Donald Trump has created a force within the Republican Party 
that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon and is going to be quite powerful. So there'll be pushback there as well. But but overall, um, overall, uh, he will seek to pursue it. Uh, the spending levels are enormous. They will be cut back if the Republicans control the Senate. But beyond what you can do in the in the Congress and the Senate it is what you, you can do um, in the on the world stage. And with Boris Johnson in the UK, with COP at the end of the year, with Boris Johnson inviting Xi Jinping um, to come. Uh, as a guest to that COP conference, you're going to see leaders of three of the most significant economies coming together to talk about uh, the issue of climate change, of the green agenda. Um, so on the national stage, he'll still be able to be a strong advocate for that agenda. He will have domestic policy considerations in some of the states that are particularly reliant on um, hydrocarbon, the hydrocarbon sector and 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 that's a political problem for him too. Thanks, Linton. Um, just looking more broadly um, to the impact of the pandemic, really, uh, and clearly there's what we've seen coming out of the US, but there's a broader point about the impact that the pandemic's having on politics and public policy. Where are things going to go over the next few years? And I'm not just talking about the US, but I'm talking about the UK, Australia, Asia, more globally. Yeah, well, there's there's so much wrapped up in that question because you can start with the with uh, the role of government and economics. You're, you're seeing governments across the board, whatever their philosophical foundation, making the case and accepting the argument that government needed to intervene early to help cushion the most serious of the impacts caused by the coronavirus and the disruption to the global supply chain, to the global economy, to travel, to business, to people's very livelihoods. And so that has led to government expanding in many different areas. Um, so it's the reach of government that's changed and how does that easily get wound back? In the UK, Jeremy Corbyn said that the government's response to the pandemic was a vindication of everything he's believed in in his time in politics. Um, so, so there will be those who have who see a sort of pragmatic response by government to the problems of the pandemic as an excuse for sustained and expanded government involvement in all sorts of areas where government traditionally has not been. Then there's the issue of economics and the cost. Uh, of maintaining the support mechanisms that are in place now. Some have been wound back, but most are still there and they're still costing billions. And so th then over the next few years, the challenge of dealing with the payment of the debt that's occurred, the challenge of winding back some of those expenditures, there's been, you know, um, in, in some countries, you've seen additional support for people who are unemployed or on welfare and whatever it may be. Um, it's not necessarily easy to take that away from people um, once they've had the taste of it. So mm -hmm. you're going to see um, uh, challenges about how the debt is funded, how the role of government um, has changed. Uh, growth, economic growth alone, be enough to create the additional revenue through um, uh, through um, effectively um, increased taxation from increase uh, from a from a growing economy rather than increased taxation by 
uh, higher tax rates on certain businesses and individuals. So you've got that to, to play out, and, and there's, that's going to be that's going to get very difficult in some places. Um, and whilst people are being prepared to support governments in the short term to um, allow this increase in debt, then not necessarily some pol- some political parties are not easily going to allow support for increased taxes and increase and continuation of high debt. So strategies as to how you deal with that debt and the repayment of that debt become important. And then finally, there's the whole policy framework around what um, the pandemic has highlighted is the interconnectedness of the world and, and how fragile countries can be when that intercorrected interconnectedness is broken as a result of some, um, some um, significant event, some, um, some very, very significant event. And so uh, that significant event this time is a pandemic that has disrupted supply chains, that has shut down countries that has closed the travel industry, that has kept people in their homes, that has put people out of work. But next time it could be not a pandemic, but it could be a disruption through some cyber security or uh, attack on the financial system uh, or you know, cyber attack or an attack on the financial system around the world or something like that. And so governments will need to think um, the areas where the pandemic has exposed the structure of government policy and the economy, supply chains over-reliance on certain markets for, for products or to sell your products, um, ensuring that you have minimum levels of supply, energy supply, um, medicines, pharmaceuticals, medical supplies more generally, food, um, finance, technology, all these areas are areas that have suffered to a greater or lesser extent some form of disruption. So I think you'll see a focus by governments on what I call economic sovereignty, building in sufficient resilience within the country to withstand future shocks. I don't talk about nationalism, although some people uh, have, have latched onto na- nationalism issues, but much more about how do we ensure that if there are these disruptions, we're not so exposed that we, are, that we suffer a significant consequence. So government policy will be much more attuned to building resilience and, and ensuring economic sovereignty, sovereignty so that any future disruptions don't take the toll in the way they have taken uh, in the relation to this pandemic. Uh, and, Lynn, you touched on it there, and it's a fascinating point, I think, about economic sovereignty. But do you think politicians, do you think voters, do you think whoever the influences are, are going to be able to balance economic sovereignty against, you know, worse things you hinted, nationalism, there could be, yeah, a greater collapse of globalisation and there have been a lot of benefits to that. H- how do you see that being managed? Well, firstly, it would be a mistake to lapse into an argument against free trade uh, or, you know, we, the world is globally connected and um, technology has meant that we can do just as we're doing now. People can communicate around the world very easily. They can do business anywhere in the world relatively easily. And wealth and opportunity has come from that ability. So it would be, you know, to cut off your nose to spite your face if you um, if you um, took a nationalistic position. This is this is about it's about as with most things, it's about achieving the right balance. It's that balance that 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 is that must be um, achieved, and so it, it's a difficult issue for governments because 
there'll be some who say we're too reliant on these people or we, sh we should stand on our own feet in relation to this or that. But it's not that simple because we are connected and a country like Australia uh, is in a really interesting position because we're a small nation in terms of population. We export. We need open markets. We need to be able to trade with the rest of the world. We need our citizens to have access to commodities and products from the rest of the world at reasonable prices. If you start to put in place too many barriers, that's problematic. And so sort of jingoistic nationalism would be highly damaging to many. But what is needed is a sensible approach to um, the structure of our economic relationships with other countries. Um, and, and then, of course, you've got other considerations which we haven't even touched on them too complex probably to talk about tonight, today, um, and that is uh, issues uh, around national security and foreign intervention and, and the sort of geopolitical landscape that is also part of the consequence of uh, or is changing as a consequence of this pandemic as well. Yes, thanks. Uh, th that's fascinating. And you do raise a good point about where we get into some questions about national security, whether the pandemic's overshadowed some of the concerns uh, that we're all living through uh, before, whether it's terrorism or, or other frictions turning around um, the world. But look, conscious of time, and I, I always enjoy these conversations and could talk on uh, for ages because I think they're fascinating, but could I finish with one uh, more general question? And that comes from the fact that you've seen Mayor dealt with very closely a very wide range of politicians and leaders from around the world. So the question in a couple of parts is what makes a great leader in your view? Secondly, what makes uh, a great politician? And what's the difference? That's a great question. It's a complex question. It's a simple question in other ways. Essentially, I think, um, Great leaders uh, believe in something. I believe that good policy is good politics. Napoleon once said, leaders are dealers in hope. And I think uh, an effective leader must give a sense of hope, of, of optimism and belief to uh, his or her citizens. So, you know, you might think, I, I've, as you've pointed out, I've got a and background in campaigning, and that might sound like, oh, well, do and say whatever you need to achieve the outcome you want at the time that you want that outcome. But actually, the thing I've learned after 40 years in politics, having a set of values and a set of beliefs as an anchor to all the decisions you have to take and the frame of reference for those decisions is critically important. And I've seen ultimately that good policy in and therefore is good politics. But I've seen the leaders that are most effective are those who can articulate a story about a better future for their citizens. And whether you live in, you may, in all the campaigns that I've been involved in, from places as diverse as Fiji or Thailand, Iraq, or the United States or the United Kingdom or Australia, culturally people are different. But the fundamental truth remains, people want a better life for themselves and their families. They want to be able to live in peace. They want to be able to have a decent life and leave a legacy of something better for those to follow. And a leader who understands and connects with people on those terms will always be a great leader. 
And actually, I don't think there's really much difference between a great leader and a great politician. There can be clever politicians, but often clever politicians are very transient. And they may be clever for a time, but because there's no anchor, because they're, they're smart and they can be a bit talk well and, and can respond to particular political circumstances, they may survive for a period. But ultimately, I think what endures is someone who has a set of beliefs as their foundation. Thank you, Linton. That's terrific. Thank you so much for spending uh, your time with us today and for sharing those insights. Thanks very much. Thank you.